Spirit Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, well, man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Uh, today is March the 13th, 2013. This is episode 1088 of the Survival Podcast. And the subject today, defining the machine. I've told you for a long time that the system is rigged. It's not going to change. You can send anybody you want to Washington, and it's not gonna change a damn thing. A lot of you thought I was crazy. There's no way it's that bad. We gotta fight for us, our rights with our voting in the ballot box. And I've said until you change the system, you'll change nothing. Today you're gonna hear exactly why that's the case. I was 95% there, but this guy named Patrick Barron uh, from Massachusetts, who I met up at the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire, who's behind DefiningTheMachine.com, Gave me the last 5%, and it even sickened me. It might sicken you as well, but if you want the truth about how politics in Washington really works, how a freshman congressman shows up, ready for his new job to do the will of the people, and even when he means to do the will of the people, the first thing he gets is a bill and finds out he's in hock to his own party, you're going to find out about that today. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today BackyardFoodProduction.com There's not a lot you can do about Washington right now, folks. You're going to hear why in a second. But what you can do is take control of your own life and your own food supply. The best way to do that is turn your backyard into a food production machine. If you want the best resource I know of to make that happen, nuts and bolts, real-world things that actually work that a family right in Central Texas is using to do the same for themselves, Check out Growing Your Groceries at BackyardFoodProduction.com, where Marjorie Wildcraft will do just that, teach you to turn your backyard into a food production machine. Next up today, survival gear bags. You know, sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes they go wrong and we stay put and we use our preps. Sometimes they go wrong when we're on the road, or sometimes they go wrong in a way where we got to go. When you got to go, you got to take gear with you. You want to take gear with you, you need a bag. Check out Survival Gear Bags to find the best bags for all the situations you can come up with, from go bags to bug out bags to get home bags, active shooter bags, and everything else in between. And if you're a little light on gear and you need some gear to go in those gear bags, they can help you out with that as well. Run by Kelly John Doe, long-term community member. Survival Gear Bags was actually started when Kelly set up some group buys on the forum, saw an opportunity, and formed the company over three years ago. He supported the community heavily since then. I'm so impressed with the work he's done. He's now running the TSP Gear Shop as well. Check him out today, survivalgearbags.com. And you will find that both Backyard Food Production and Survival Gear Bags do provide a discount to members of the support brigade. So if you're going to do business with either one of them, log into your MSB account first if you're a member and get your discount codes there. I also have an announcement about the uh, the uh, support brigade. I added a new discount vendor yesterday. Many of you have probably seen the announcement on the blog. Many of you probably haven't. It's a company called Mother Earth Products. I was contacted by them, and uh, they have a great selection of products. And one person contacted me and said, you said they're a great deal, and I already found that I can get uh, uh, pricing on like number 10 Mountain House cans and some of this stuff for less than their, their equivalent number 10 size in a, in a Mylar bag. And, I, and my response is, and does Mountain House guarantee you that the product's not genetically modified in any way and not soaked in atrazine and glyphosate? 
Well, Mother Earth Products does. That's right. No GMOs at all. Check them out today. MotherEarthProducts.com is the name of the company. Great pricing, better than my previous go-to source for a lot of dehydrated vegetables, which was Harmony House Foods. And I hit them up for a discount for MSB. 12%, guys. 12% off. Family-owned company that looks after and takes care of its customers. Uh, they wanted to be sponsors. I don't have any room. I mean, that's been that case for years. I bring, you know, maybe turn one sponsor a year or two over. Um, but... Uh, I hit them up immediately and said, you guys look great. Let's get a discount set up. I asked for 10. The owner came back with 12. Uh, I'm no fool. When somebody offers more than I asked for, I say deal and done. So they're now part of your uh, your uh, MSB membership discount page. Reminder for those of you who are MSB members, if you log into your account in the MSB, number one, it is not connected to your forum account. Don't, don't. Try to log into the forum with your MSB stuff and vice versa, unless you set it up the way so they happen to match. They're not connected. Number two, if you want the discounts, you have to log in. You have to click on benefits. And all the vendors that do it are there. Click on their name. You'll see their offer and how you acquire the discount. If you just order from somebody, you're not going to get a discount by magic. That's a good segue into the fact that if you have uh, not yet joined the member support brigade, this is another example of why it's a great deal. If you buy dehydrated food, freeze-dried food in bulk, which many of us do, this discount alone can put 10, 20, 30 bucks easily back into your pocket a year for a membership that's 50 bucks a year. That's one discount. Um, the, the, the discount buyers club at Safecastle is 49 bucks. Okay. Um, the discount, uh, membership that you get for free from Western Botanicals is 50 bucks. So that's $99 plus whatever you would say from this one discount. And there's like 33 other companies. And I'm bringing another great one in the medical field on uh, within the week if I can make that happen for you. I got you free shipping on body armor. I mean, I, I don't. I, what I usually say every day is like consider joining the MSB, support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. I don't talk about the value enough. The discounts pay for the membership. And I got a couple comments yesterday from people saying, you know, I got to remember to get my discounts because they'll even buy from a sponsor. They'll buy from a vendor and they'll forget to go, guys, t take your discount. That's what they're there for. When I started this show, people wanted to support it with donations. A couple people even sent me money. I sent it back. I do not run a charity. This is not um, PBS. I sell a value-added product that puts money back into your pocket, and the discounts are just one way that we do that. There's over $150 worth of free eBooks, and I'm feeling generous today. So here's what I'm going to do: I'm going to run a sale. This is for new members only. It's not a big sale, but I'm going to run it through the rest of the week. Ten bucks off a membership, first-year membership of MSB. Um, the discount code to welcome Mother Earth products will be Mother Earth. And it will be one word, all lowercase, so no space. Just Mother Earth is going to be the discount code. Um, ten bucks off a year membership, so forty instead of fifty bucks. You can use the form to pay by mail. Just write it on there and send it in. If you pay with silver, we'll just add a couple more months. If you pay with the form, uh, so Mother Earth is the discount code to welcome Mother Earth products to the MSB. Ten bucks off. You can't use it for renewal unless you've already expired and you're just adding a new subscription. It's not that I don't want to do that for you. It's too complicated. It doesn't work. PayPal doesn't work that way. I'm not Verizon going, new customers only. It's the only way I can do it. All right. So a little extra commercial time for MSB there. Uh, but it is a good deal. And it's a, it's a product that I would sell to, you know, my grandmother if she was still around. I built it that way on purpose. It delivers 
you know, many times the value that it costs. And it is how we run the show and support everything around here. So check it out today if you haven't before. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and remember, use discount code Mother Earth. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, your prior service, or a first responder like a paramedic, do not use that discount code. My discount code for you is better. It's not massively better, but it's better, and it applies to recurring membership charges, okay? So when you automatically renew, you get the discount every single year if you get that service discount. To do that, email me before you join, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. And then in the body of the email, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Not a lot, one or two sentences, just so I know where you're coming from, and I will email you back with a special discount code to thank you for your service. With that wrapped up, I am ready to get into the meat and potatoes of today. Though, like I said, more than meat and potatoes, you may feel like you want to throw up by the time you're done here and all this. I will tell you I vetted it. It is all absolutely 100% positively true and factual. I'll ask Patrick during this interview twice, I think, questions that he thinks is true, but he's not sure. And you will hear him say, I think so, but I can't prove that one yet. So you know you're dealing with an honest guy that's just trying to tell you the truth. I love when people answer questions with I don't know or I'm not sure. That always helps to tell me that I'm dealing with an honest person. He's East Coast, so he's going to speak kind of fast. I'll try to slow him down through the interview uh, so that it makes sure everybody's absorbing everything that he said, but I'm just preparing you for that. If you are from the Midwest or the South like I am, he's going to be kind of a fast talker, but he really knows what he's talking about. This is important information that you need uh, to, to know, and this is his show and his site that you should share with your friends. If you want to cut the whole intro section off and send your friends just the, the part from here on, that's okay with me. You can do that. Um, I think it's very, very important that this message gets out to as many people as possible. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, this is an issue that we can all agree is a problem. And we're going to see just how big that problem is with the help of our guest today, Mr. Patrick Barron. And with that, hey, Patrick, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, actually, this is something that like never happens. I have people being booked into June right now. Generally, I don't try to work people in, but when I met you in New Hampshire, um, you tied together what I've been telling people for so long, and they just don't listen in such a way. I felt this was really important. So as soon as we had like a guest fall through, I got Dorothy to bring you in. So I appreciate you, you know, adapting to kind of a, a floating schedule and being here with us today. No, oh, no problem. Again, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Well, one of the things you told me is that the federal Congress, and I'm sure some of this stuff goes on at state levels and all, but when we look, and I've said that the federal House and Senate is a freaking joke. I call it a clown house, and I call the people there ass clowns. Right. And, and I've said that, like, you can vote for the D or you can vote for the R. You're not really going to change anything for so long. But you, what you told me is it's basically a proven play, uh, pay-to-play pay system. Right. Why is that? Well, again, one, it is proven. Uh, what it is is basically um, when a new member gets to Congress, he's assigned what they call a member or party dues. So just getting to Congress 
puts you in debt to your party. So hypothetically, I'm a freshman Republican. I just got elected in. Party leadership is going to pull me aside fairly quickly and explain to me how Congress works, which is basically the more I give money and the more I support their ideology to the party leadership, the farther I can go in my career and the more they'll help me in return. So the party dues, when you first get there, are approximately $100,000. So immediately you're charged money that you have to pay your party. Um, then what the party does is they tell you where to go get the money, which is to use the RNC or DNC right across the street from their offices to do their fundraising. And within the RNC and DNC are the uh, call centers, which are really nothing more than telemarketing centers. And you go there, you see the secretary, they'll give you a list of who to call and how much you should make from each person. And you basically go fundraise and you turn that money back into the party. And by doing that, that kind of puts you in good graces with leadership. Um, the reason is pay to play. People say, okay, well, sometimes there's party dues. That's okay. Um, but it's pay to play in the sense that, you know, you're clearly told how much you owe, where you have to go to get it, what the reward is if you do get it, and what the punishment is if you don't get it. So, I mean, it's absolutely uh, a pay to play system. And again, this is all, this is all documented. Um, you know, on my website, I have links to many articles, but it, it's out there, but it, it's just really not linked together. So people have a very similar reaction to what you have, which is, you know, something's broken, you know, it's not working, both parties seem to be dysfunctional. And this does kind of connect the dots. Well, what I've always said is that all of these guys are in hawk to somebody, and the people that are spent giving them the money are the ones that are really in control. I go back to an old philosopher from mid-century England that said that, that when one hand gives money to the other, the one giving the money is always in control because that's the hand that's always higher. Right. What you did was explain to me the mechanism that kind of ties it all together. And what you just said is like a mouthful. So let's walk through this kind of one step at a time so people can really take it in because basically you've just explained the whole thing, but a lot of people, their mind is going, nah, this can't, it, I, no, right? It's yeah. like when you explain monetary creation the first time. You can do it in five seconds, but people, it takes a while to get it. Right. So let's go through this. So you say, right. member gets to Congress, he's immediately in debt to his party. Right. And how much? About a hundred grand, right? A hundred grand. There's varying reports, but yeah, about a hundred grand, give or take. So then his party says, you know, you need to come up with this hundred grand. Now, very few of our congressmen, especially freshman congressmen, whip out the checkbook and write a check for a hundred grand. So they have to get this money from somewhere. Right. So where does the money come from? Well, that's that's where the party leadership will help them raise the money. They'll tell them, uh, go across the street to the call center, see the secretary, she'll give you a list. They actually have lists provided. They have who you should call when they donated last um, and how much they would like you to get from that person. So they actually have lists assigned of how much you should try to get from who. By doing that, obviously, they're going to send you to, you know, the Republicans are going to send you to the more extreme right-wing groups and the Democrats are going to send you to the more left-wing uh, liberal groups because it's easier to fundraise from the extreme sides of the spectrum versus the middle. So you're going to be told to go across the street and make some phone calls and raise money from the extreme side of the ideology. By doing so, that, you're now in debt to the money, people that gave you the money, which I agree with what you're saying, that basically whoever gives the money is in control. And, uh, and then you're also in debt to the leadership. Well, so let's really put this in perspective for people, because I like to cut through things and get down to like the, the true brass facts. What you've just told me is we all get together, we support this grassroots uh, freshman congressman, we get him elected, we send him off to do the work for the people, and basically the first job he gets is no different than walking down to a local telemarketing center 
and getting a job doing fundraising for the local police department, except it's being done at a much higher level. But he's basically doing a $9 an hour telemarketer job for his party when we've sent him to D.C. to do work for his people. That's what you're telling me. Yes, exactly, exactly. And not only are they doing it, but it's the amount of time that they're doing it. You know, it's hard to get an exact number, but what I've been able to find is basically they spend 30 to 70% of their time fundraising. So it's amazing that we send them down there to do work for us, and they'll do midnight votes, and everything comes down to a crisis at the end of the uh, budget year or whatever the case may be. Um, but they're spending 30 to 70% of their time fundraising, whether it be at the call center or meeting with lobbyists or hosting dinner with lobbyists. Um, but yeah, they're, they're fundraising all the time. And yet they all complain about the amount of money in Washington. So you, you mentioned you know Republican a few times. So is this an e- evil Republican plot for big business and then the Democrats are angels and they're not doing this too? Or is this... Both parties. No, this is absolutely both parties. This is a this is a totally bipartisan is- issue. It is uh, both parties function the exact same way, which is also makes you know again one of those dots that gets connected is they function the same way because they're doing the same thing, which is why people are fed up with Congress and they say they're all the same. Um, the process to how it functions is all the same, and that process is broken. So. We're getting the same results. You know, we like, you know, we go down grassroots level. We like somebody, we get them in. We think they're going to do well. Uh, immediately they're told how the game is played and now they're in debt to the party and no longer in debt to their constituents. Now, if you want to get the donkey to move, you put the carrot in front of him and you dangle it and it looks really good and juicy and he starts heading toward the carrot. So I imagine this isn't just, um, a pain situation there's actually a reward so if you do good and you raise your money you get something and if you get you become more successful and more clout and can call more people and get more money maybe you get a little more so what do these guys get out of this other than just they're they have a seat at the table so to speak there's actually a like an echelon of control within the body of congress right 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 there is you know there's party leadership um you move up the ladder basically when you get to congress leadership is going to support you in what you wanted to do again this is done in a very friendly big brother kind of way that hey we like what you campaigned on we can help you with whatever the legislation is that you're working on um but in order to do that you got to get in the game and if you get in the game, we can help you. We can help you get your bill into committee. We can get you on the committees. Um, it's a publicly stated fact and well documented. Again, on my website, it's there that they actually charge certain fees to get on certain committees or minimum entrance fees. Anyways, you can always raise more, but uh, but they charge a minimum fee to get on certain committees. So basically, they reward you by getting on committees, which helps you move legislation um, and so helps you fundraise more money. So. Then, I mean, there might actually almost be a price list, right? So if I want to be a, a seat on a minor committee, it might cost me X. And if I wanted to be a seat on a major influential committee, it might cost me Y. And if I wanted to be actually chair a committee, then I would actually have to come up with even more money. Right. And there is, actually is a price list. Um, and it's on my <laughs> website. <laughs> I know. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, it's actually on my website. There's a link to the 2011 price list for the Democrats. And basically it starts about $100,000 if you want to be a lower ranking member on a lower committee, up to you know, literally millions of dollars if you want to be high ranking on a high committee. Uh, so there, there actually is a price list and it's actually published. So. Now, do some of these guys, because they've been, you know, some of these guys have been in office for 20 years, uh, mm-hmm. a big case for term limits there uh, in of itself, um, except that I always feel like if you actually want a term limits, that's the people's freaking job. But um, so would you say that maybe some of these guys, when they want control and they've built up these huge war chests over time, 
basically donate money to their own party from their own war chests so that they can basically buy their seats just straight outright. Right. Yeah, that, that's what they do. They, they buy their seats, which buys influence, which helps them with legislation. They can also buy things like sponsorship on bills. So if there's a bill coming through that I want to get my name on because it's going to help my district, I can approach leadership. I can get money for leadership. Leadership will then make me a sponsor on the bill, even though I had nothing to do with the bill. But then I can go campaign on it. So that's one of the reasons that you, you know, they can perpetually be elected. Is there? Well, hold, 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 hold. We got to talk about this. So sure. a lot of times I'll see a, a bill that looks like a really popular bill that people are going to want. Right. And even though it's not going to pass, it's something that like the certain wing of one party or the other. I hate to even use Democrat or Republican because it's the same system either way. Right. And then I'll see like a list of like 30 co-sponsors. Yep. Now, I always looked at that as like, okay, these people are trying to help get this bill through. Are you telling me that they buy that listing so that they can campaign on it? I believe so. I, you know, I can't prove that one 100%, but yeah, absolutely. I believe so. There's too many cases where people become sponsors out of the blue. Um, they're not a sponsor. Uh, they don't even support the bill. And next thing you know, they're sponsored on a refined version of the bill. So why does that happen? That doesn't happen by accident. Ah, great. So we know what they get. What do they like? Because this is you can't actually make someone do this. I mean, if I ran for Congress and I won and nobody asked because I'm not freaking doing it. And I went up there and what Boehner or one of his boys came up to me and said, hey, you know, this is how it's going to work, Jack. And I said, go screw. Yep. They can't send me out of the building. They can't they can't say you're not a congressman anymore, or not a senator anymore. They, 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 I, I'm still there. Mm -hmm. So how do they punish me for not playing the game? Well, basically, by barring you from the game. I mean, you, you, know, you really have to think about the process. What I focus on, which is a bipartisan issue, is it's the process of how this all works that creates the gridlock and the issues that we have. So the process is if you get in the game, they help you. If you don't get in the game, they don't help you. So across the street from the congressional offices is the RNC and DNC. That's, that's the nerve center to being reelected. That's your marketing. It's your opposition research. It's your fundraising. They have a restaurant in there to hold fundraisers. Um, that's where you can meet with lobbyists legally um, versus in your office where it's a little more difficult. So you need to be able to use the RNC and DNC to get reelected. Otherwise, you're a perpetual first term candidate running again. So in order to, to use those facilities, you have to be in the game. So much so that in 2006, uh, Rahm Emanuel went to all of the Democrats in Congress, said it was going to be a close election. They needed more money. So he wanted $50,000 from each of them within three weeks and said, basically, if you don't get me the 50 grand, you can't get into the DNC. If you don't get in the DNC, you're not getting reelected. So, so you're absolutely threatened if you don't play the game. And you basically end up being a one-term congressman. I mean, just recently, Justin Amash and a couple other, other senators, uh, congressmen, that really haven't followed leadership's lead, uh, recently just got thrown off a bunch of committees. So that might be the beginning of the end for those people. We'll see. Is this why the, the occasional rogue that runs as, let's say, an independent and wins mm -hmm. always ends up choosing a side to caucus with? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. Bernie Sanders springs to mind. Joe Lieberman, when his own party threw him under the bus, ran as an independent, got his seat back. Right. But then both of them turned right around and caucus with the Democrats. Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, no, no person who hasn't been in gets in as an independent. Typically, it's somebody that was a Democrat or was a Republican, and they become an independent just to avoid a primary loss, <laughs> typically. So it's not even that they really were independent. They were avoiding uh, losing in the primaries, typically. So once they get back in, they go back to the same old tricks. I mean, an independent's not going to be able to get anything done. You don't get anything done. You don't get elected yeah so the concept of a candidate telling their constituents that they're going to be an independent voice when they get to washington essentially is a myth 
And I would say even if that person, when they're saying, because they've never, a new congressman's never been there, so a lot of these guys have no idea this is what they're walking into, but there's no way they can actually do that. Right. Well, that's exactly it. That's the issue. And that's how I came across this. I was actually an independent candidate for Congress in 2010 in Massachusetts, and, and that's where I started you know, researching and finding out about this. But, yeah, the, the, the concern that I had is that nobody knows. The candidates, the challengers don't know. They're not even aware of this as an issue. So you're right. They go in. They're sincere when they're campaigning, saying they'll be independent. They want to do all these things. And then they get there and immediately are, are really educated about how it works, and they can't be independent to their constituents. So it's not even that they're lying when they're running, but by the time they get there, the rules change. The second time around, they know. The second time, second time, they're not quite so honest because they know how the game works. So, I mean, the question that came up when I put this out on the blog is, well, what about a person like Ron Paul? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Because, I mean, this guy's been a, he's, I mean, he's done what he said he would do, at least tried to, and he did that for over 30 years. Right, right. Well, the Is it just because if you have enough, kind of, you can, okay, here's your money, now leave me alone? Yeah, no, Ron Paul is actually kind of a unique situation in the sense that he didn't play the game. He really didn't pay money to the party. He really tried not to do this. Um, so he was kind of out there in a maverick on his own for a long time, but at the same time, he didn't do a lot other than raise issues and raise awareness. He didn't get a lot done. So he's kind of unique in the sense that he didn't play the game or was able to get reelected repeatedly. Um, but he was trying to get on the Financial Services Committee for years, and when he did get on the committee finally a couple of years ago, he, uh, he did make a check out to the Republican National Committee for $300,000. So he ended up paying to get into that position. Now, I don't think that he sold himself out. He's obviously shown his dedication over the years, but my yeah. his leadership says to him, look, you know, we're charging everybody for these kinds of positions, and you know, we have a lot of impressionable freshmen behind you, and we can't give you positions unless you show them that you play the game. And, uh, and ultimately, he wrote the check. So it, it, well, and I mean, he had raised enough money. I would think that you know, even most of the people that donated to the Ron Paul uh, candidacy would say, if that gets this guy on the committee, then you know, fine. Um, but he wasn't over in a freaking telemarketing center begging for money either for for the party. Right. He, he you know he didn't approach it the same way. He had been raising money over the years, and he does a lot of grassroots fundraising, which is good. Again, I don't think he sold himself out by doing it, but uh, because he was aware of the process, because he didn't do it for years and years and years and years. There was actually a, I have an article. I don't believe this on my website where they ask him about it, and he just basically said, "I don't even know what you're talking about with party dues. I don't pay any dues." And he's sincere. He's sincere, but yeah, but that's, the, that's I think that, you know you're also looking at a guy that, like you said, and I said this in 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 kind of a defense when it was asked about it when I published an article about the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. That this is exactly the case. He did a lot to raise awareness, but if you actually say, "What is the track record?" of Ron Paul's success in getting things done in Congress that would not have happened without him. It's very, very small. Right. It was all about awareness. And it's been huge for the liberty movement. Right. But I think it's also reinforced the myth that somebody can get – because it, it looks like he got a lot done. Right. But show me the bills that were introduced by Ron Paul that were counter to the, 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 his own party right. in any way, shape, or form that got passed. Right. Right. And there's not a lot of them. No, no, there's not. There's not. And that's not by accident. Again, you can only get so far unless you're playing the game. And Ron Paul wasn't playing the game, so he wasn't able to pass the things that he wanted to get done. He was great for the liberty movement, and he really brought a lot of awareness out. But, you know, they're not going to work with you if you don't work with them. It, it, it's a pay-to-play system, and if you, don't, if you don't do it, you're not getting anywhere. And they make that very clear. They make it very clear. And that's the problem with the gridlock. You know, the two people I get asked most about when I present this is typically Ron Paul, which we just talked about, and Alan West. Um, I always focus on the Republicans. The reason I focus on the Republicans is because 
fiscally, I tend to agree with them a lot more. I believe in smaller government, a lot smaller, and I'd like to see it limited and, you know, financially dramatically. So, uh, but one of the people that's really risen over, you know, very quickly was Alan West. And so everybody always says, what about Alan West? Because he talks a great game. But, you know, I have articles where Alan West actually collected dues for the party. But again, that's how you get stature is you help the party, they help you. The reason you know about Alan West is when they call John Boehner for an interview and he declines it, he'll say, well, why don't you go talk to Alan West? And he gets them the FaceTime. And in return, Alan West becomes a collector for the party. So, you know, the reason you hear about some of these guys isn't because they're actually as good as they say they are. It's because they're playing the game and they're getting put out there. I, I kind of feel the same way, and some people are going to be really upset with this, maybe to a lesser degree, but the same way about Rand. Um, that's the other one I, I heard about a bunch. What about Rand Paul? What about Rand Paul? And I think Rand is his father's son, and he's he's a pretty good son of the father, but he's not the father. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I haven't followed Rand Paul as much. There's, there's an issue with that. One, the Senate is slightly different from Congress because leadership doesn't hold the same power over senators as it does with Congress. The process is the same. It's just done a little differently. Uh, the magnitude of it is done a little bit differently. Um, so, it, so it's a little different to begin with. I actually haven't. I followed Rand Paul in terms of any donations and things like that. Um, I have to say personally, I like the guy, um, but uh, but I haven't really followed what he's doing on that level. Well, I think part of why it's mitigated somewhat in the Senate is there's only 100, right? So there's a difference there, right? Because you, you're you're literally 1% of any vote as a single senator. Right. And right. 1% significant. When you look at at, at, at the House, right. one vote in the House isn't jackedly crap. There's almost there's almost never a vote close enough for three or four people to make a difference in the House. It happens, but it's rare. Right. Three or four people in the Senate can swing a lot of things one way or the other. Right. Well, exactly. Right. Exactly. You want a lot more influence. It's all about leadership. There's more competition for committees. There's more competition to get your bills passed, et cetera. You know, in order to get on a committee, not only do you pay the money, but it's decided by the Republican Steering Committee, which is actually only 26 people. Um, so 26 people decide who gets on these committees. Out of the 26 people, two people hold seven votes. Again, this is democracy in action. The Republicans always talk, <laughs> I know, they always talk about, how, oh, geez, we believe in democracy. Well, the reality is to get on a committee seat, you need 13 out of 26 votes. Yet the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader uh, have seven out of those votes. So, you know, it's all about pleasing leadership. And when this really started back in uh, – uh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it started with Newt Gingrich, actually, back in 1986. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, is, is, is this not this was this course of business for 100 years, or is this new? Yeah, no, it, you know, it's been course of business for a long time in the sense that, you know, politicians always gave money to politicians a little bit, but they didn't give as much money back to their party. But back in 1996, what happened when the Republicans uh, took over Congress, and I give, you know, I give credit to uh, Newt Gingrich and his management style, what had happened prior to be a committee chair is you did it through seniority. So over time, you became a committee chair. So you'd be on the same committee 10, 15, 20 years. And you'd be on that committee with people from the opposite party for 10, 15, 20 years. So you'd learn to negotiate. You'd develop relationships among other committees. It was a very decentralized power source. So the committees themselves were very independently powerful. When uh, the Republicans came in in 96, Newt Gingrich changed that. Uh, there was a big outcry for term limits for Congress in general, which I don't think will ever happen. But instead, what they did is they term limited committee assignments. So now you could only be on a committee for three terms or six years. You could only be a committee chair. So the way to do that, you know, that's one of the really buying and selling of committee assignments 
became prevalent, so much so that in 96, um, you know, it's documented that in order to be on the Financial Services Committee, you, you actually had to sign away your vote that you would never vote against party leadership to be on that committee. So when they're, you know, when that person is running for office, he's telling you that he's going to represent you and be independent to his district, et cetera. And the reality is, is they signed away their vote to get on the Financial Services Committee. So it really started taking off in uh, 96. You really see a dramatic shift. Um. Do you think this is a big part of, you know, we hear the term gridlock all the time and, you know, the do-nothing Congress, et cetera. Has this exasperated gridlock, the inability to actually find a compromise that works for the people and, and both sides give a little and both sides get a little? Because what you see now is they, every, both sides are saying we want to compromise. Right. And, and, and both sides' version of a compromise is you don't get jack diddly crap and we get 100% of what we want. What's wrong with you? Why won't you compromise? Right. Yeah, no, this is exactly the reason for gridlock. This is That's kind of why I called it defining the machine and it explains gridlock. You know, Two things you always hear. You hear about gridlock and it, are things worse today than in the past, which I would say absolutely they are and you can prove that. Um, and, and why is it there? But nobody explains why. Everybody says it's there, but nobody says why. And this, this system, uh, my theory explains why gridlock is there. That basically, when you're fundraising by the extreme or left or right parties, you're in debt to the extreme left or right. And that's the way the votes come down. So you can never meet in the middle. You know, 86% of the people are not satisfied with Congress. So my question becomes, I'm always asking why. Why are 14% happy? But it's the 7% on the extreme sides, left or right, that are happy. It's the middle ground that's not represented because every time Republicans and Democrats start to come together, they're moving forward. They're sincere. They want to do something. I'm not saying these are bad, evil people. They're just stuck in a bad system. So they want to do something. They start moving forward. They start looking towards agreement. But if it's going to affect their donors, then their donors start calling and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that for X, Y, and Z reason. Or I gave you a million bucks last year. You can't do that. And it collapses. And it collapses. So the system is designed for polarization. Do they have other things that are related to this that the general public doesn't know about, other ways that deals are cut and made or anything like that? Well, just in terms of the history a little bit, again, you know, it changed a lot in 96, and then it changed a lot in 2002 with the Bipartisan Congressional Reform Act. Uh, basically, what the parties, one of the things they did with that was the parties banned soft money from coming directly to the parties. They were, hope, they were tr telling the public they were going to make the process more transparent and not take money directly. But what they did in the same bill is they made it so congressional members could, one, they doubled the amount that they're allowed to fundraise. And two, they made it so they could give unlimited amounts back to the party. So all they did is in 2002, instead of shutting off money from coming directly to the party, they made the congressional members conduits for the money. So they've actually created a system that's created more gridlock. So back in 96, to get on committees, you had to start buying seats. In 2002, now that congressional members are the conduit for the money, they are forced to go out and do all the fundraising for the party. So really, it's, it's a system that's just geared for polarization because everybody's in debt to leadership or, or the donors. I mean, the thing I say to people at this point is we might as well have two congressmen. You might as well have Boehner and Pelosi because everybody else has to follow their lead. You know, we're overpaying, you know, 533 of these guys. <laughs> so, huh, this opens up a completely different dynamic. So let's say that I was uh, fairly well-off uh, lobbyist with quite a bit of influence and had a bunch of money I wanted to uh, put into the hands of the Democratic committee, and you – you were, you know, a member of the top-ranking member of the committee, and I said I want to make this donation, but based on this new finance, I, I can't do it anymore. You could maybe say, hey, you know what? Uh, 
Joe's been doing a real good job for us. Go give him the money. Exactly. Yep, they can do that. They can donate it to the to the members, and the members can turn around and give it back to the party. So you know, if, but not only that, the, the leadership of the DNC can tell the lobbyist which member to give it to because he was a good boy. I oh, mean, yeah. this is almost starting to sound like the freaking Godfather here. Oh yeah, no, it is. You know, I'm going to do you a favor. You're going to do me a favor. Then we're both going to get a favor, and then we're going to all be good. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the dynamic you're describing. It is. Well, it's a pay-to-play system, which is the Godfather. So you know, you know, it makes sense that they would work that way. You know, in 2010, when all the Republicans swept into office, one of the things you know, I have articles. <clears throat> That, you know, discussed basically when they came into office, so many freshmen came in that they couldn't indoctrinate them fast enough. So the head, the, you know, committee chairs were taking out the entire committee to meet all the lobbyists at the same time. So they could do these massive rounds of introductions to get them connected. You know, the candidates will have you believe that the lobbyists are always calling them. The reality is, is the candidates are calling the lobbyists equally or more than the lobbyists are calling them. Because the hand below is in service to the hand above when the money's handed over. Yep. So if I give you a pie every day for a year and I don't show up with a pie today, you'll probably come to my house and ask me where your pie is. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so do you even have a video yeah. on your website, freaking John Boehner yep. uh, admitting yep. that he handed out checks from tobacco companies to the members of Congress on the floor immediately preceding a vote regarding big tobacco. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that happened back. Kind of explain that. I mean, you know, that's not almost like I just said it. You should get it, but you know, people are going to go, "What? You can't do." Yeah, I know. Well, again, this stuff is so inherently wrong. I mean, in a congressional code of ethics, it says never do anything that you know creates the appearance of a conflict of interest. Nothing about this fundraising does anything other than show a conflict of interest. Yet they all do it. So yeah, back in '96, there was an expose done that basically John Boehner was giving out checks. Um, from tobacco companies to other members on the floor of Congress right before the vote for big tobacco. Uh, the video is on my website. It's uh, definingthemachine.com. And uh, he, he admits that he did it. And even during the interview, when he admits that he did it, he says, geez, you know, it's a practice that's gone on a long time, and we really should put a stop to it. But, you know, but he just did it the day before. <laughs> so so you know, how serious is he doing? So he's like, yeah, this is garbage. This is. I watched the video. It's incredible. Yeah. This is garbage. This is crap. Yeah. You know, and, and it shouldn't be done. In fact, what I'm going to do for everybody, I'm going to, I'm going to play that little video right now, and we'll be right back, and we'll, uh, we'll, right. we'll kind of wrap up from here. Please, folks, do what's right. Don't do what the tobacco industry wants. They As a newcomer, in the halls here Smith assumed that in a budget-cutting Congress, this would be an easy fight. But she underestimated the tobacco lobby, which descended on Congress as the vote neared. There are tobacco lobbyists everywhere and at all the receptions in the buildings around the Capitol. They'll say, I was your friend in the last election. So they use that terminology for giving you money. And they'll say, you know, are you going to be our friend on this bill? That's how you're approached. Because they can't, they change the terminology because they can't say, I gave you money, you vote for me. As a battle raged over the tobacco subsidy, the reach of the tobacco lobby extended right onto the floor of the House, a forbidden domain to all but members and their staffs. Freshmen like Steve Largent were shocked at what happened there. Well, I had heard that uh, that there was one particular member that was passing out checks on the House floor. And uh, I immediately went to that member and confronted them and, and uh, asked if it was true. And they confirmed that it was true. And 
you know, just... Who was it? Well, I'm not going to reveal who it is. The member, it turned out, was the fourth-ranking Republican leader in the House, John Boehner of Ohio. Like Tom DeLay, Boehner has become known as a Republican leadership point man with powerful business lobbies. Wine asked me to, to give out a half a dozen checks quickly before we got to the end of the month, and I complied. And I did it on the House floor, which I regret should not have done. It's not a violation of the House rules, uh, but it's a practice that's gone on here for a long time that we're trying to stop, and, and I know that I'll never do it again. Were the checks from tobacco companies? Uh, I think, if my memory was served me correctly, I think it was a tobacco check, yes. How do you feel about that episode, looking back on it? It's a bad practice. We have to stop this. This is just not something that ought to happen. But in this case, tobacco's well-timed contributions helped save its subsidy. So the people that were passing out the checks won. All right. Well, that that was pretty incredible, man. Um, but you had some other things you wanted to talk about. There was there was something you were you were on right there when we took that break. Yeah. Well, just in relation to the whole thing about John Banner giving out checks on the floor, you know, he gets confronted on it. And then they decide, okay, we should really ban that because now that it's public, we look pretty bad. So we're going to ban the fact that we're giving out checks on the floor of the Congress. So they did. They, you can't give out checks on the floor of the Congress. And politicians will tell you when you see them in their offices, they can't take checks, they can't be bought, et cetera, et cetera. But right in the Congressional Code of Ethics, there is an exception made that says that members can take money from other members in their offices. So they banned it on the floor of the Congress, but – if I'm a congressman sitting in my office and you come down the hallway to talk to me about some highway bill, uh, you can sit in my office and I can say, geez, didn't you hold a fundraiser last night? And you can say, yeah, actually I did and I got a check for you. Here it is. Let's talk about the highway funded. And that's completely legal. They exempted themselves about fundraising from each other in each other's offices. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, that brings in the whole thing with the fundraising and now the conduit is taking place and now the member can distribute to other members. Because I think we hear three terms all the time and how bad they are, but no one really understands them. So maybe you can explain what they are and the role they fill in. We hear PACs, LPACs, Super PACs. What is all that mumbo-jumbo, you know, an acronym crap, and what does it actually mean and how are they used? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, Well, basically... Every candidate has what they call a PAC, a political action committee. Um, it's either, you know, they call it a PCC, a primary campaign committee. Everybody's got one of those. So that's basically if I ran for Congress, you've got the Baron for Congress, you know, PAC or political uh, campaign committee, primary campaign committee. That's where I take my money in, and that's what I use to get myself elected. What happened in 2002 is when they changed and made me the conduit for money, when I fundraise into my primary PAC, I'm turning around and giving away roughly 30% of that money back to the party. So the problem is, is prior to this, I used to use some of my primary campaign money to give to other members because they're buying money, you know, they're buying influence from each other as well. So when the party started demanding more money from me from my primary account, the issue became, well, then how do I pay off the other members? And that's where they came up with the leadership pack idea. The leadership packs, they're, they're really nothing more than a second. Hold, hold on, hold on. Before we go there, hold on. So until they did this, basically what you're saying is that if I was supporting Patrick Barron for Congress, and maybe you wouldn't have done this, but if you were a typical candidate, and I say, I, I believe in Patrick, and I'm going to write him a check for $200 and send it to him, and I think that I'm giving you that $200 to further your campaign with, Really, I've given you about 140 bucks, 
and sixty bucks to the RNC or the DNC. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Third. Great. Okay. Continue. I'm sorry. I just want to make because this is kind of shit that people hear and they're like, no. Yeah. Yeah, just no. want to be clear. So now go ahead with LPAC. Yes, 30 to 70% of what they bring in, they're giving, giving away. So, yeah, so what happened with the LPAC is basically if we're giving all my money, um, if my money for my primary campaign account is going in two directions, it's going back to party leadership to play the game, and it's going towards getting me reelected. So how do I pay off the other members, and how do I pay off the state committees that will help me get reelected, et cetera? So uh, leadership PACs took off. They've been around since, you know, before 96. There's only 42 in uh, 1996. There's over 373 of them now. And a leadership pack is really just a second bank account. So it gives me the ability to fundraise twice from the same donors. So I can go to Verizon and have them put into one account that I'm going to take 30 to 70 percent of and give to the party. And I can go back to Verizon and have them put in a different account that I'm going to give 30 to 70 percent to another member. So it really is just a second bank account. You know, leadership packs should just straight up be illegal. But it's really just a fund. It's just another bank account. So they can hit the same donors twice. So you put a limit on me, but you say, but that's per per unit, and you're allowed to have two, so the limit's actually doubled. Yeah, yeah, the, the limit's doubled. Ah, nice. Then we get into a super pack. Yeah. Based on what I've heard so far, this doesn't sound good. Well, go ahead. What's a super pack? Well, super packs in some way, well, one, they're separate. So I don't focus heavily on the super PAC. Super PACs are the businesses, are the companies, are the nonprofits that are forming collections um, or collectives that raise a ton of money and then either sponsor advertising themselves or they selectively donate to members um, themselves. The issue with super PACs is the money's not as trackable. So people are really worried about it. They bring in huge amounts of money. But it's not something that Congress directly controls um, themselves, which is why I don't focus on it. My big thing is small and limited government, and I think you need to regulate them before you regulate anybody else. The concept of leadership PACs, they could stop. They could just choose not to do it. They don't need any legislation. They could just decide that this is inherently wrong. Um, so I focus more on the, you know, on the PACs and leadership PACs and not the super PACs. Um, the, you know, the members of Congress will always talk about super PACs, but when was the last time they told you what a leadership PAC was? Because they always point the finger outside of Congress. They never want you looking inside of Congress. My, my whole thing is about looking at Congress. You know, the problem isn't the citizens of the United States. The problem is Congress. And, the, and they're not bad people. I don't demonize anybody. But it's a system that's completely broken and the process is corrupted. So, well, you talk about regulations for them, well, but they're the ones that pass the regulations. So yeah. it really is the fox minding the hen house. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, just like in 2002, you know, they say they banned the soft money from coming to the parties, but then they have a different conduit to get the money. So they knew how they were going to get the money that they told you they were going to stop to begin with. They were never planning on stopping. They just had a different conduit, which is always the case, which is always the case. So well, we, not only did they know how they were going to do it, they did it in a way that actually strengthened the very system they said that they were putting restrictions on. Yeah. They made the system more powerful, not less powerful. Yeah. With a supposed regulation. Right, exactly. Yeah, they made the parties much stronger and their influence greater. Yeah, no, they, they strengthened the gridlock. They, they strengthened the, par the uh, partisanship by doing it. And they knew where they were going to. So it's, it's, it's like not just a chicken uh, house being minded by the fox, but the fox is like passing a regulation requiring all the chickens to uh, have you uh, to, to have the chickens have their wings clipped. Right. Yep. That, that's what it is. That's what it is. You know, when you talk to candidates, you know, my big thing is try to get people to talk to candidates because, again, the freshman candidates don't even know this is an issue. And my goal is to educate them that this is an issue. So hopefully they stop. They're walking into a trap that they don't even know they're walking into. You know, they could stop doing it very easily if they were aware of it. The problem is they're not aware of it. By the time they get there, it's too late. So I'm using this approach to try to get people like yourself and your listeners to educate their candidates that 
do you realize you're going to be charged party dues and are you going to play that game? Um, put them on the spot. Most of them have never heard of it. They'll talk about campaign finance reform, which really is a joke. That's not necessary. You know, again, 30 to 70 percent of what they're raising, they're giving away. They could cut down the money in politics by 50 percent if they just stopped giving away their money. <laughs> so, so they need to regulate themselves. That's the issue. So but they're not going to do that. Well, I mean, so what's the solution here? I mean, we've talked about campaign finance reform, term limits. Some people say, well, let's do all public funding at a campaign. So everybody gets the same amount of money. It all comes out of the same bowl. And there is no money. There is no. But that kind of gets into the whole thing. Like, if I want to support a candidate, shouldn't I be able to? There's free right. speech. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is them. The solution is them. The solution is your candidates. And the solution is the public being aware of this issue and making them stop. You know, publicly financed campaigns is not the way to go. Um, you know, this, again, they could cut down the money in Washington by 50% tomorrow. All they have to do is stop buying influence from each other. That's all they have to do. So half of the money would go away tomorrow if they would agree, geez, being charged party dues is a bad thing or giving you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to other members of Congress is a bad thing. If they would just be aware of that and stop that, half the money in Washington goes away. They always talk about the problem, but they don't talk about why the problem is. And if they don't know why, the solution is always wrong. So they're always offering up these failing solutions because they're not identifying what the problem is. I'm trying to identify what the problem is, and it's really them and the system that they've trapped themselves into. So what do you think we can do? I mean, other than I mean, to me, the only thing we can do is really shine a light on this thing. And yep. it seems like that's what you're trying to do and make as many people aware of it as possible. So when they do their little town hall meetings and shit, I'd like to see people standing up and going, hey, uh, if we're donating money to you today. How much of that money are you going to turn around and give to the, uh, the committee? Um, what is this about handing checks? Have you ever been, uh, Mr. Congressman, in your office and either received or given a check to another member of Congress? I mean, is it is that really the approach we need right. to take? I think it is, and that's why, I, in a way, I like this issue because you don't have to target everybody. You have to target the new candidates, and ideally, you know, this is such an issue that is so apparently right or wrong. You know, again, the Congressional Code of Ethics says don't do anything that creates the appearance of impropriety. This clearly does. Everybody <laughs> I talk to about this the issue. Appearance. This creates the environment of impropriety. There is there is no way you can do this and not get into a place where special interests are served and 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 people are I mean this is there's no way this system works without it Exactly. Exactly. Which is why that's why, you know, I think shining the light on it will make a big difference. This is really a case of right or wrong. You know, I've never presented this issue to one single person that's disagreed with it, but I have presented it to several candidates and none of them really want to talk about it. They're already committed to not ruffling the feathers of, you know, their future leadership, whatever the case may be. The only people that haven't just stood up and said, oh, my God, this is terrible, are candidates that have tried to educate not one member of the public that I've ever talked to has disagreed with it. So really, I think it's pretty, it'll be pretty quick and easy for the public to make this culturally unacceptable. This is blatantly wrong, and we need to point it out. If people start asking their candidates on candidates night, hey, would you do this? Do you realize this occurs? Uh, it will become a lot harder for them to do it. Well, I mean, are you finding that there's a receptive environment? I mean, you talk to me. I'm alternative media. I don't give a damn. I'm beholden to nobody. First open slot, dude, you're on. What about <laughs> mainstream media? I mean, clearly, like, okay, this is what pisses me off. You're telling me things that I freaking know Glenn Beck must know. I know Rush Limbaugh must know. I know the people that do articles over at the Huffington Post. I know the people on NPR. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. The big media outlets 
have to know this crap is going on. I've never heard a freaking peep about it because both of them are so worried about protecting their horse, they don't give a damn about the racetrack. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I'm, I'm not sure who knows what. You know, I know, you know Rush constantly talks about the money laundering system, which I totally agree with. Um, but sometimes it's just a matter of connecting the dots, kind of where you started the interview, that basically everybody knows there's something wrong. We know the pieces that are wrong. We know the money. We know all the stuff. But nobody's really connected the dots. And what I've done is I've tried to connect those dots. So I'm not sure why it's not out there more. At the same time, you know, I, my presentation has only been out there for about a year at this point. I ran for Congress in 2010. I started learning about the issue. I was able to confront my opponent um, in debates about the issue, but I didn't know it well enough to really challenge him as I would today. Um, so this really hasn't been presented with such clear focus, I don't think ever. Um, so I'm out there trying to educate people and, and I'm excited to be here to do that, but we'll see what happens. I mean, this connects a lot of dots for people. When you look through politics and the dysfunction and the gridlock and the failed bills and why can't they go forward? Um, when you look at it through this lens, it just makes sense. Um, yet again, I'm a small government guy. What I like about it is this, you know, don't get fooled that we need regulation or we need campaign finance reform. Or we need publicly funded, ca you know, campaigns. We need them to do what's right or wrong. It's really very simple. But we need to point out what's right or wrong. Sometimes the easiest answer is the simple one. This is a very simple issue. Now, you would think that if you could really get, con you, you, you know, we're saying well, we want Congress to regulate themselves mm -hmm. when they're, they're behaving like a bunch of freaking mobsters, gangsters, and thieves. Right. And generally, mobsters, gangsters, and thieves don't regulate themselves. But the reality is there's a very small core of party leadership that actually benefits from this. Right. And everybody else in Congress is being victimized by it. Right. So you would think if you could put enough of a light on it, it just would almost be them freeing themselves. Because I know there's a lot of congressmen that are doing things they prefer not to do, saying things they prefer not to say. And I like your insight on this, because I did something in my past that you've done in yours. I ran for office. I ran as a libertarian for a, a seat in the Texas State House. Mm -hmm. um, the minute you start running a political campaign, you start to think and act differently. For instance, I just had a neighbor that was being a he was being a dick. There's no other word for it. And normally he was behaving in a way that I would have went over and said, "Hey, look, you're being a dick. Knock it off." Right. You know, and not real aggressive. Just just flat out would have told him, "This is this is not how you need to be." And immediately I, I was catching myself going, "Well, what if he made a big deal about it? Now you're running." And, and, and I ended up going to tell the guy he was a dick anyway. But I had the thought that I would have never even had before. Right. That starts to change. Well, I normally wouldn't do this, but since I want this, I've got to. Doesn't that just start to happen almost immediately in your mind? Just as a, no matter how upstanding you are as a human being, you start to think differently, don't you? You do. You do. You know, cultural norms are extremely powerful. You know, my background actually isn't politics or finance. I'm actually in human services. I have my master's degree in uh, clinical psychology, and I work for the Department of Mental Health. So I've actually been in mental health my whole career. But partly, you know, that's helped me learn how to find a straight line through dysfunction. Um, so, yeah, cultural norms are extremely powerful. It's almost like smoking. I mean, smoking is legal, but it's not culturally accepted anymore. It's very, very difficult to do it. Cultural norms are powerful. And what you're saying is exactly correct. As soon as you become a candidate, you start censoring yourself. That's normal, and it's not the end of the world, but it's how far will you go with it. And by the time you've gotten into Congress, you're so far along, 
you don't want to stop going forward. And then leadership comes along in a very supportive way and says, geez, we really want to help you. We like you. We watched your campaign. Um, but, but this is what we do. Uh, you know, you tend to keep going forward at that point. It's very hard to get out of it. I do wonder if it's shifting already. One, I'm out there trying to make it happen. But two, you also see more and more senior members of Congress retiring. And I'm really wondering if, you know, things like the Internet, things like your radio show. So things like your radio show are help bringing light to it. And I think that people, you know, the writing might be on the wall for some of these senior members, that things might be changing already. And hopefully things like your show and, and me presenting it uh, will bring light to it. We'll see what happens. You know, what's happening to Justin Amash and getting thrown off these committees is really fascinating to watch. It'll be interesting to see. Now, now he's talking about running for Senate, which would, would probably be a great thing. Um, but, you know, Congress is already trying to shut him out. The leadership's already trying to shut him out because he's not playing the game. I, I think that, okay, I mean, take the, 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 the D versus the R out of this. If you're voting in a district mm-hmm. and the party leadership has turned its back on your candidate, on your side, freaking vote for them. That's probably an indicator that they're rocking the boat. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, like congressmen are like children, right? Yep. You want the kid not to take the cookie out of the cookie jar. You put it where he can't reach it, and when he crawls up and puts his hand in it, you smack the hand and say, don't do that. And then when he's a good boy, you give him a cookie. Right. And what does the, what's the cookie for the congressman? They want the donation. They want the support. They want the vote. Right, right. So rocking the boat should become what people are asking for. If, if the DNC or the RNC loves your candidate, they're probably not looking out for you. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. We actually had a situation in Massachusetts in uh, 2012. Uh, you know, candidate Ron Richards to say uh, he had been a state rep before and he was running for Congress. You know, they have, they have a Young Guns program in the Republican Party. They have like a red to blue program for the Democrats. Again, this is equal on both sides. But basically, to get in the Young Guns program, there's three stages. There's, you know, on the radar, there's being watched, and then you're in the Young Guns program. And the leadership will tell you to get into the Young Guns program, you have to pass a set of rigorous benchmarks. That's the, that's the buzzword they always do. <laughs> but the rigorous benchmarks are mainly fundraising benchmarks. So you actually have to show that you're willing to play the game to get the party support. So they're indoctrinating a guy like Richard Tissay before he even gets to Congress. He's already met with them. He's already been brought to fundraisers with them. He's already shown that he can do this. Um, so he's supported by leadership. And he almost won the election. Um, but, uh, you know, people... The Republicans get all excited. The, the, you know, the constituency says, oh, geez, you know, a member of the Young Guns program is great. It shows he's getting the backing. Isn't that wonderful? But it's actually exactly what you said. That's a bad sign. That's a really bad sign. I would, you know, that's not an endorsement I would ever want. <laughs> no, no. I'll tell you, um, here's another experience I had from running for office. It's, it's pretty interesting. It just tells you, even at the state level, how many people are out there willing to use whatever system's in place. One night we're at a, a really nice uh, restaurant having dinner, and I'm there with one of my business partners and all, and, and our attorney for our corporation was there. And I had talked to him a few times on the phone and all, but I had never actually had a sit-down meeting with him. And somehow we got on the, the subject of politics, and one of the one of the girls that worked for me was always telling me I should run for office again. And she told him, you know, he ran for office. And he said, really, tell me about it. I said, well, I ran as a libertarian in a heavy Republican district. I got like 18% of the vote, mm-hmm. uh, which was insane because a Democrat usually got like five. Wow. Right. So I, and I, I said, I made a point. I never expected to win. That wasn't the point. It's just, I wanted people to have a choice. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was just something I did for, for effect. Right. And he says, well, if you ever actually want to win an election and are willing to run as a Republican, let me know and we can make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and I was like, I felt like, you know, we need. I'm like, he's a good attorney, but we need a new attorney. I mean, I, I yeah. it's like I don't even want anything to do with this guy anymore. My partner's like, calm down. Yeah. It's not that bad. I'm like, no, no, it is exactly because you could almost feel him like already sticking the hooks in right yeah. there. Like, hey, yeah, I'm connected. I got money. I got other people that got money. Yeah. I know the seat you're talking about. That yeah. person's not this new, 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 new member down there. She's only been right. in office two terms. She's not that strong. Mm-hmm. You're a good speaker. We could do this. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you'll do it my way, right, right. right? That was it. Was a very and it was like, yeah, don't worry about it, man. I'm not interested in that. He goes, if, and what he what he landed with was, when you're interested in winning, let me know. Yeah, exactly. Like we we control the process. You don't. You know, um, it, it's so opposite of what it was meant to be. Winning on principles and ideas is almost impossible, even though that's what we need more than ever. You know, that's why you're doing your show. And I'm doing such a good job with it is you knew that that is wrong. Um, you know, and you've got a backbone, stood up to it and went in a different route, which is probably more influential than had you won. And that's great. Yeah, that's great. But, yeah, that's the way the system works. And it's very, very corrupting. It starts out slow. The people aren't bad people. You're obviously not a bad guy, but the offer's out in front of you. And a lot of people take it. A lot of people take it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, I appreciate the work you're doing. Your website again, you want to tell everybody what it is? Sure. It's Defining the Machine, one word, definingthemachine.com. Well, folks, I think this is an incredibly important issue. I think it shows you two things. One, quit arguing with each other about, you know, who's who's the who's the shiniest of two turds in your elections. <laughs> and start let's actually let's actually start focusing on what the problem is. Because I've been saying for years the system is the problem. And Patrick, I help you, I, I appreciate you helping me explain exactly how big the problem is today. Oh no, I appreciate you taking the time and getting the opportunity. I'm just trying to get the word out. So anybody who wants to contact me, contact me through the site. All right, folks, again, the website is definingthemachine.com. And this has been Jack Spirico today along with Patrick Barron, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.